Well, as we come to the Word of God this morning, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our God in heaven, we confess that you are the great sovereign one who reigns and rules over all. Of your dominion, there will be no end. You are the one who has created all that we see, created each one of us. And we give you praise this morning for your might and for your power. We also recognize, Lord, that on our own we are wicked and vile. Our hearts are deceitful and wicked. And that apart from your grace, Lord, we could not come before you. We thank you that you have opened our eyes to see the light of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. And that you have given us your word that we might know you. Please use that word this morning to deepen our knowledge and communion with you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is a privilege each and every week and a necessity each and every week for us to gather corporately around the Word of God, for us to open up His truth, to hear from the living God, and for it to instruct our lives. And this morning, we find ourselves in the middle of Luke chapter 5, and I invite you to take out your personal copy of God's Word and turn there to Luke chapter 5. If you don't have a copy, you can uh, find it on your uh, phone, tap there, or uh, there is a pew Bible that's in the rack in front of you that you'll be able to find it as well. Luke chapter 5. But before we dive into this chapter, I want us to pull back a bit and get a sense for what's transpired in Luke's gospel leading up to this point. You know, it's easy to uh, get so buried into the trees that you lose the forest, that you lose the sense of, of where you are and how far you've come. And so uh, it's important for us to think about what has happened in the book of Luke up until this point. As you know, the author Luke has been presenting the life of Christ for his readers so that they might have an accurate understanding of who this man was, the historical Jesus Christ. And what he came to do. He began in Luke's chapters 1 and 2 about his conception and his birth. And, and through that account we saw that it put Jesus in a class entirely by himself. That Jesus was wholly unique simply by looking at his conception and his birth. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit to a virgin. Luke 1, 33 and 35, 34 and 35 say. His birth prompted a heavenly choir to, to breach down onto earth and fill the sky and to sing the glories of God on the night of his birth. And upon his presentation in the temple, a prophet and prophetess attested to his special character and his mission when he was only a month old. In addition to this, the Lord sent a messenger ahead of Jesus, we know as John the Baptist, the one who was going to proclaim and prepare the people for the arrival of this Messiah. And at his baptism, something never seen before and never seen since happened. Heaven opened and God the Father spoke, saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And the Spirit in the form of a dove came and rested upon God the Son. And so, Unlike anybody else, Jesus was designated as the unique Son of God and was anointed with the Spirit. 
after his baptism in Luke chapter 4. Luke records that he went from his baptism into the desert to be tempted by Satan. And after this, uh, that, that successful victory, Luke records that Jesus' ministry began in earnest. He began teaching in their synagogues and news began spreading all around about who this Jesus was. It's there in Luke 4 that he returns to his hometown of Nazareth. And he emphatically declares who he is and what his mission is. I want you to see this briefly with me. Luke chapter 4, flip back a page. Or Luke 4, verses 18 and 19. He's handed a scroll there in the synagogue and he reads from Isaiah. Luke 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And as he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus says, This scripture speaks of me. He is declaring to those in Nazareth that he is the spirit-appointed Messiah. The spirit is upon me, Jesus is saying. He's been anointed to proclaim. He's a prophet to proclaim the good news, he says. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But he's also more than a prophet. He's a deliverer. He's a savior. He's setting prisoners free captives free he's he's a healer he's giving sight to the blind he is the messiah and combined with these ideas of messiah is the right to the throne the fact that he would be israel's king and so by by jesus saying that these verses speak of me in the book of isaiah he was presenting himself as the long-awaited king of israel the greater son of david who would reign in righteousness so what would israel do now this man has stepped on the scene and is presenting himself. What would they do with this man? Well, here in this account, Nazareth tries to kill their, their hometown boy by pushing him to the edge of the cliff and trying to throw him off. But outside of Nazareth, he's received quite warmly. The news begins to spread widely. At his teaching, he, he, they recognize that he was teaching with authority. They were astonished at his teaching, chapter 4, verse 32 says, for his word possessed authority. They hadn't heard anyone like this. The rabbi simply expounded what was already written before, but, but Jesus was speaking with a newfound authority. Someone who knew what he was saying. On top of this, though, he wasn't just teaching with authority. He began doing amazing things. He was casting demons out of people. There in the synagogue, as chapter 4 records, he was healing all sorts of diseases and illness, illnesses. In fact, uh, commentators believe that, that he b effectively banished disease from Galilee for a period of three years. If not all of Galilee, especially in the area around the Sea of Galilee and around Capernaum. People were desperate to get to him. They wanted their loved ones healed. They had never seen anything like this. But at the end of chapter 4, Jesus specifies that he's not just a 
teacher. He's not just there to do great wonders for the masses and gain popularity. He's a man on a mission. And in chapter 4, at the end of uh, chapter 4 there, he says in verse 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus was sent so that he might proclaim the good news of the kingdom to all those around. The other gospels record that Jesus and John the Baptist began their ministries by saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Saying that the, the kingdom of heaven was near, the, the king was there, and therefore if they accepted the king, the, the kingdom would, would come. And Luke here tells us that Jesus was sent in order to preach the gospel of this kingdom. The king had arrived, the spirit-anointed king. He was the divinely empowered king. He was the king who was the beloved of the Father, as was made clear at his baptism. And so this was the king that Israel must embrace, Israel must believe in, and Israel must trust. They must look to him for their salvation. This is what he's calling upon to the nation, and they have a choice to make. You see, they simply can't like the guy. They simply can't fit the, the guy into their nationalist agenda because Jesus is calling for total surrender. He's calling for spiritual repentance and full faith. And this call that Jesus is pressing them on will test them to their core. Will they ultimately surrender allegiance to Jesus? And what we've seen so far in Luke is that the people, by and large, have been very enthusiastic about Jesus. You would say that, man, he's getting a warm reception by the masses. But this popularity, this increasing uh, word that's being spread about him is getting, is getting shared to the spiritual elites, the religious leaders of the nation. And it, what initially started as rumors and, uh, and words that were being passed around about some guy in Galilee is now a more serious deal to them. There's crowds flocking to him. People are saying he's a prophet. They're saying he's doing things that only God can do. And as a result, the religious elite sense a threat to their spiritual monopoly. They need to investigate this threat themselves and try to counter it if they are going to stay in power over the people. In our passage this morning, Jesus is confronted for the first time in the book of Luke with these spiritual elites. In the course of this exchange, Jesus is not going to back down. He is, he is not going to uh, change his message in light of opposition. In fact, he's going to pull back the curtain some more and show just how unique he is. It's one thing, you see, for him to make claims when there's no opposition and everyone loves you and the fawning crowds are all there singing your praises. It's another thing to make the claims he makes in front of the opposition that you know is going to hate you and potentially could do great harm to you. He's going to show that he's in a class by himself. He is God's true representative. The, the religious leaders, they don't speak for God. Jesus speaks for God. Let's see this as we read our passage this morning. Luke chapter 5. We're going to begin in verse 17. Luke chapter 5, verse 17. On one of those days, he was teaching. As he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee 
and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. In this passage, we are going to see Jesus' authority put on display. And it's going to be put on display in a sequence that I have devised for us, a a sequence of four stages. And as we look at these four stages, each one of us will be forced to reckon with this man. We need to see Jesus' authority just like the people in Jesus' day needed to see it. And we need to reckon with this man. Is he truly God's representative? Does he truly speak for God? And if so, what does he call us to do? What does he ask of me? So let's look at the first stage in this passage that displays his authority. The first is the exercise of his authority. And we see this in verses 17 through 20. The exercise of Jesus' authority. Verse 17 begins by setting the scene generally. He says that on one of those days, he was teaching. Luke is not specific about where it took place. Mark records that it's the city of Capernaum. But Luke cares more to highlight who was there. He says that as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. Now, Pharisees were a a Jewish sect that had developed between the time of the close of the Old Testament and the start of the New That's why if you're just reading straight from Genesis to Revelation and you uh, turn the page on Malachi and you open Matthew, you suddenly are presented with this group called the Pharisees as well as the Sadducees, which we'll talk about some other time. But the Pharisees and Sadducees are these sects within uh, Judaism that you don't find in the Old Testament. They developed during this intertestamental period. The Pharisees in particular were those that were spread out throughout the land of Israel. The Sadducees were more concentrated within Jerusalem and more connected to political power with Rome. Uh, The Pharisees didn't care so much for Rome. They cared more about the law. They cared that there there would be tight observance to the law of God. They wanted to call the people back to fastidious observance. And so they began to build other laws around God's law as revealed in the Old Testament. They put on extra laws because, and they called it building a fence around the law. So that, so that they didn't disobey those laws, we'll put other laws to try to uh, put an extra barrier before we get there to actually disobeying God. The problem with this is that 
those extra laws began to be equated with God's law, and therefore it added a, uh, uh, um, is the word I'm looking for, but it added a, uh, a reality in their, a legalistic, thank you, thank you Lord, a, uh, a legalistic uh, dynamic to the religious life in Israel in which they were uh, measured their religiosity according to these extra laws that were given. At the time, Josephus, the great Jewish first century historian, notes that there were only about 6,000 Pharisees in the nation. And even though they were relatively small in number, they were very influential among the populace. Now it says there were also teachers of the law that were sitting there. These seemed to be lawyer types who knew the precise statutes even closer than the average Pharisee. And they were there with their notepads or, or slates or whatever they took notes with and there to listen carefully and evaluate the claims that Jesus had and be able to scroll down to uh, chapter and verse on exactly where Jesus would disobey. These religious leaders, it says, were pulled from every village in Galilee and Judea and even from Jerusalem. You see, word had been swirling among every community about who this guy was. And so now these religious leaders needed to band together. They needed to go together and evaluate who this man was. It's interesting that there seems to be a delegation from Jerusalem here. And I can't help but wonder if the man in the passage we looked at last week who was told to go to Jerusalem and be examined by the priests, if he shows up declaring the praises of Jesus to be examined by the priests, and that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, and they said, all right, we've got to send some people up there because this is getting ridiculous. And so here we have some of these religious leaders from Jerusalem. But notice what verse 17 says about Jesus. First, it says that he was teaching. He was teaching. This is the staple of his ministry. We've already seen this so far. He is a teacher bringing a new message, a new proclamation to the people of Israel. And he taught with authority, and crowds gathered to hear this. But secondly, I want you to notice at the last phrase of verse 17. Look at it with me. It says, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. The power of the Lord was with him to heal. An interesting note by Luke. I believe this is another indication that Jesus operated in his ministry through the Holy Spirit. Luke has made a point in his gospel already to say that the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus and enabled him to do things that no other human could do. You remember that at his baptism, the Spirit came upon him like a dove. It, it demonstrated that he was anointed, that Spirit had come upon him. He was now that Spirit-anointed Messiah. And immediately after that, chapter 4 opens by saying that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He's being led by the Spirit. Luke is making an emphatic point about this. Following the temptation, verse, chapter 4, verse four, 14, says that he returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Again, Luke is making a point that there is a the difference between pre-baptism Jesus and post-baptism Jesus is the Holy Spirit. And it's the power from the Spirit that gives Jesus the ability to do what he is doing. Yes, Jesus is 100% truly God, even in his incarnation. But as he came and surrendered the independent use of those attributes, he surrendered himself to submission to the Holy Spirit. And it's through that Holy Spirit, the God-sent Spirit, that he was able to do what he did. Luke 
makes several mentions of this reality. And so Jesus here in this passage is going to exhibit that power again. He's going to show off that he has indeed this, he indeed has this power. Now verse 18 sets up the scene more specifically. Here we meet the actual details of what's going on. Verse 18, and behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. So we're introduced to some men. Mark tells us it's four men, four friends, and they're carrying their paralyzed friend on a bed or stretcher to Jesus. We don't know why he's paralyzed. We don't know what may have caused his paralysis but we understand why it took several friends to try to get this man to see Jesus. They get to the house, and it's full. They can find no way in. The front door is completely blocked. No doubt they probably asked some people, tapped them on the shoulder and said, hey, can we get in? And everyone kind of brushed them off and said, no, we're here to listen to Jesus too. And so they need to find another way. Notice their determination. They could have said, hey, buddy, you know, the guy, on the, the friend on, on the bed and say, you know what, we tried, but, you know, we, maybe we need to come back another day. Uh, you know, maybe we just need to wait out here until he comes out because he seems to be kind of busy and, and there's a lot of people there. No, they, they needed to see Jesus now. And they continued to try to find a way to do that. They decided to go up to the roof. They decided to go up to the roof. Now, if you think of that in terms of our houses today, uh, that doesn't seem to make sense because there's a roof you can't stand on and there's uh, no uh, ladder or stairs that go up to the roof. But in uh, ancient times, they would have flat roofs that were often another room of the house. And so the stairway to get up to the roof was often outside. And so they could easily avoid the front door, go to the side of the house, and go up the stairs to get to the flat roof on the top. Now, these roofs were made by uh, just beams that were going across, and then they would put tree branches and other things on top of those beams, and then they would lay a layer of mud on top of that and create somewhat of a, of a layer that would be able to keep out the elements. And some would even put some tiles on top of, uh, on top of there, uh, depending on the area of the, of the ancient world. There could be tiles or not. But it's into this tiled, crusty mud layer that the friends begin to dig. And they begin to, to pick away and to, and to try to claw away at this mud and through the tree branches and the, and the logs and try to open up a hole so they could get, Jesus, get their friend down to Jesus. And you can just imagine the people down below. They start hearing some scratching, some digging, uh, some pounding. And uh, then some dust is starting to fall, that mud starting to cake off and, and fall onto them and... It's disrupting things down below as they all wait to see as the light begins to pour in through the hole. And they're not just digging a small hole. they got to dig a hole big enough for a stretcher to come down. So who knows how long that took. But they didn't stop until the hole was big enough. Providentially, they dug a hole that enabled them to land their friend right in front of Jesus. Now up to this point, we've assumed that these friends are desperate to get their friend to Jesus so that he'd be healed. I mean, to the casual reader, it seems like, oh, yeah, he's a paralytic. He needs healing. Let's go to Jesus. I mean, this 
that alone would cause the desperation that we see. It would, it would spur the dedicated action by these friends to say, yes, we will do this for you. We want to see you healed. But Jesus understands that behind them lowering this friend and, and working through all of this to get there was more than just a desire to heal. There was a deeper request. And behind the dismantling of the roof, the interruption of the teaching session, lay a desperate desire to be forgiven of sin. Jesus, it says, sees their faith. It says, verse 20, and when he saw their faith, Jesus knew that they believed in his power to heal and his power to forgive. He's moved by the resolute faith that goes to such great lengths. And this faith includes more than just the man. Although Jesus speaks to the man to forgive him of his sins, it says their faith. It, re it took all of them, all five of them, and their faith to, to go to Jesus. All of them were believers in who Jesus was and wanted to see their friend forgiven. Well, Jesus sees their faith and responds to their visible yet silent request for forgiveness by saying this, verse 20, man, your sins are forgiven you. Your sins are forgiven you. And in those words, Jesus boldly declares what no human before or since has been able to say, that he is able to forgive the sins of another person. He is exhibiting the power of God to forgive. Jesus' words here indicate that man's greatest, this man's greatest need was not to be healed of paralysis, but to be forgiven of his sins. This was the top priority. And Jesus addressed this spiritual ailment before he addressed the physical disorder. And I believe there is a point in this that we need to hear today. What was true of the paralytic in this story is true of each one of us. That we have a spiritual need that is greater than any physical need. As Pastor John MacArthur has said, forgiveness is both mankind's greatest need and God's most important gift and the only means for blessing in this life and eternal life in heaven. But the fact that we need this forgiveness, the good news of the gospel is that that forgiveness is found in Jesus. That Jesus came into the world to save sinners, 1 Timothy 1.15 says. And through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins, Acts 10 verse 43. And in fact, the message that Jesus sends out his disciples with, we'll see at the end of the Gospel of Luke, is that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Forgiveness of sins can be proclaimed to all nations only in the name of Jesus Christ. You see, our greatest need is met by Jesus. Our greatest problem is cured by him. And yet, as we know, most people fear death more than spiritual death. They care more about their physical health than their spiritual health. Now, let me be clear, our bodies aren't bad. They were created in the image of God. We can value them. In fact, as we argued a few weeks ago, Christianity, of all the worldviews, most honors and values our physical bodies than any other worldview. And you can go back and listen to that a few weeks ago. 
So we're not saying our bodies are bad, but we are saying that there is a priority, that we need to care for our eternal destiny more with greater priority than our physical destiny. You see, all of us, all of you will live forever. We are eternal beings. And where we spend eternity is the greatest point that we need to reckon with in this life. That is top priority. And where you spend eternity depends on how you respond to Jesus. This Jesus that we see in in the scriptures. We must, like the paralytic, prioritize our spiritual condition over and before our physical condition. And I believe this is a timely word for us, is it not? Here in 2020, when physical health is the headline of the year, we're living in a country that is gripped by the fear of death. Hebrews 2 verse 15 says that this fear of death is slavery by the devil. And it's that slavery that Jesus sets us free from. But we see a world, a society, gripped in the slavery of fear of death. Do we not? It's, this slavery has been part of the, the human existence ever since sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3. And yet we see it still today. We've seen just this year, right, all sorts of people take greater concern about the company they keep out of concern for their physical health more than they have been about the company they keep for their spiritual health. We have all seen people take greater pains to avoid physical contamination than they ever have to avoid spiritual contamination. We've seen people being willing to do the hard thing to avoid a virus, but they don't do the hard thing to avoid sin. We've seen people transfixed on avoiding physical death and not give a second thought to avoiding spiritual death, eternal death. Friends, may this not be true of us. The health of our souls is at stake. The pastor J.C. Ryle from a prior century asks this. He says, why is it that so many people take no pains in religion? How is it that they can never find time for praying, Bible reading, and hearing the gospel? What is the secret of their continual string of excuses for neglecting means of grace? How is it that the very same men who are full of zeal about money, business, pleasure, or politics will take no trouble about their souls? He then answers his question this way. The answer to these questions is short and simple. These men are not in earnest about salvation. They have no sense of spiritual disease. They have no consciousness of requiring a spiritual physician. They do not feel that their souls are in danger of dying eternally. They see no use in taking trouble about religion. In darkness like this, thousands live and die. Happy indeed are they who have found out their peril and count all things lost if they may only win Christ and be found in him. I pray that all of us listening this morning would do that business of our souls, would press with zeal about where we stand before the Lord, about where our eternity will be spent. 
And may we have that eternity upon our souls that we may speak to those around us to recognize that there are thousands around us that live gripped in the fear of death and have not taken one thought for for the eternal destiny of their souls. May we recognize this truth that the spiritual health is more important than physical health and may that prompt us to speak truth in love. Well, here we've seen Jesus exercise his authority. And that exercising of his authority went off like a grenade in that small room, that crowded room. And this leads us to the next stage in this presentation of Jesus' authority. We've seen first the exercise of his authority. Secondly, we see in verse 21 the challenge to his authority. The challenge to his authority. Verse 21 says... And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? You see, the scribes and Pharisees instantly began talking to one another. They all knew this was not good. Whoa, this, all these rumors were right. This guy's trouble. They came wondering what he was going to say, wondering if they were going to catch him in something. And Jesus did not leave them disappointed. As soon as Jesus pronounces this man's sins forgiven, the Pharisees all pull out the red card and say, this man is in violation. And what do they call him on? They call him on blasphemy. Blasphemy. And blasphemy was a big deal in the Jewish world. This was the sin of dishonoring God. They took blasphemy so seriously that they outlined different levels of blasphemy. There was First, they, blasphemy would be, would be called on someone if they were speaking evil of the law, of the law that God has given. They would also be called a blasphemy if they spoke evil of God himself. And thirdly, they would be charged with blasphemy if they took the rights and prerogatives of God onto oneself, to act as if one was God. And it's based upon this third level that they ask Who does this guy think he is? Who is this man that stands before us and is acting as if he's God, pronouncing forgiveness? Now, I'm sure these religious leaders and their scrupulous keeping of the law had dealt with many infractions all over Israel in their time. People breaking purity laws, people breaking Sabbath laws. But here they've just witnessed, no doubt, the biggest infraction yet. And that is someone pronouncing forgiveness to another person. Someone claiming to do what only God can do. They knew from the Old Testament that God was the one who had the authority and power to forgive sins. In Exodus 34, 6-7, God revealed himself to be the one who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. In Nehemiah 9, verse 17, Nehemiah calls him a God of forgiveness. In Psalm 86, verse 5, David says, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Psalm 130, verse 4, the psalmist says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. 
With no one else there is forgiveness. Only with the Lord there is forgiveness. The Bible makes abundantly clear. The Pharisees and the scribes got it right. Only God can forgive. But what they failed to see was that Jesus was indeed the divine Son of God. That He was God's true representative. God incarnate there to be able to offer that forgiveness. You see, it's their unbelief that keeps them from seeing what should have been obvious. This man says this because he indeed is divine. You see, just a few accounts earlier in chapter 5, Peter had recognized Jesus' holiness and, and his divinity and had fallen on his knees, as you remember, there in the boat and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. These scribes and Pharisees should have done the exact same thing here. Hear him pronounce forgiveness to a man, fallen on their knees, and said, Depart from us, for we are sinful men. You are the Holy One. You are the one that we have all sinned against and that you can offer forgiveness. But their unbelief keeps their eyes blinded. They don't see it. And this challenge and questioning that the Pharisees and scribes give is, is good for us today, is clarifying for us. We see that what Jesus did was real. The authority of Christ to forgive sins was not uh, uh, something added to the scriptures created by later Christians. A lot of these things we see about Jesus and his power and his miracles, that people will claim that, that, that later Christians who wanted to, to, uh, to show that their Jesus was someone extra special, that they added it into these accounts that were passed down from, from earlier the first century. But we can see here that, that Jesus' uh, his, his enemies were acknowledging the fact of what Jesus said. His enemies recognized his claim to do what only God can do. Now, you'll remember, no doubt, the verse from Hebrews chapter 9 that says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. How could Jesus offer forgiveness here if there's no shedding of blood? Well, we know the answer to that. It's going to come from his own blood, isn't it? Jesus is offering forgiveness because of a sacrifice that he will give a couple years down the road. In one sense, this is a forgiveness like all other Old Testament forgivenesses. It points towards the death of Christ upon the cross. But we today don't have to look forward to the cross. We can look back. We can see that Jesus did indeed, was indeed crucified, and that he indeed did pay the penalty for sin. So we've seen that Jesus' authority affirmed in him exercising that authority and that authority being challenged. Secondly, thirdly, this morning, let's look at the confirmation of his authority, the confirmation of it. Verse, look at verse 22. It says, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? It says that Jesus perceives that what the Pharisees are saying and what they're thinking. The Spirit here revealed, seems to have revealed the exact thoughts of his opposition. No doubt Jesus could see that they were beginning to talk to one another and begin to murmur. But the text says he seems to perceive, he seems to know exactly what's causing them issue. He seems to know exactly what they're questioning and what they're thinking. And so he challenges them head on. Why do you question in your hearts? 
He's saying, why do you question my authority? Why do you question uh, whether I can make this pronouncement? Why do you question me? And then Jesus ups the ante. He doesn't just, it's not just a war of words. He's going to show physically that he is superior, that he has the right and authority to do what he just did. He asked him a question, what's easier, to simply declare someone forgiven or to tell someone to get up and walk? Which one has greater physical verification? Well, to say someone's sins are forgiven, there's no physical verification to that. But to tell someone to rise up and walk, well, that person who was paralyzed better get up and walk. The forgiveness is easier to speak just for show. And so Jesus then turns to them and says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Now don't miss this. Jesus didn't want his audience to miss this on that day. Luke did not want his audience, first century audience, to miss this, and we can't miss it as well. This is the key to this whole account. Jesus wants us to know that he has authority on earth to forgive sins. That you may know. that The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He calls himself the Son of Man here for the first time in Luke. It's a term that harkens back to Daniel chapter 7 and it describes a glorious, divine-like man who's, who is, is coming to rule the earth. It's also used in Ezekiel to describe simply a, a, a human. And so in this, ter- in this term, Jesus is saying that he is a human. He's a son of man, a son of a human. But he's also saying he's more than a human. He's a majestic human, one who is, who is given divine authority to rule. And Jesus liked this term throughout his ministry because it helped to uh, not arouse political suspicions. The Romans would not have seen it as political. He could move about the country challenging the Jews, but not prematurely raising suspicions with Rome. But Jesus is saying, on earth, the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. This was unique to him. It was a claim that he then backed up with a miracle. He turns to this paralyzed man. He tells him to get up, pick up his bed, and to go home. It's here that the drama is high. People are gasping as they see this man suddenly rise to his feet. Jesus is in direct showdown with the religious leaders. All these people knew and grew up to respect these religious authorities. And here, Jesus is dropping the mic on them and saying, I have this authority. Let me prove it to you. And so Jesus continues to show his authority and power by lovingly healing this man of paralysis. He infuses this miracle with more meaning. He he says that this miracle testifies to his authority to forgive sins. All of his miracles testify to him being the heaven-sent Messiah. This one, he, in connection with what he had just said, gave it extra meaning. Everyone there saw this man get up. They could maybe deny whether he forgave sins, but they can't deny whether he he healed the man of paralysis. But even though they saw the miracle, they all had to choose how they were going to respond to Jesus. What were they going to do with this man? 
that they just saw forgive sins and then just saw him heal. What were they going to do? And that leads us to our fourth and final step in the sequence this morning. And that is the response to his authority in verses 25 and 26. The response to his authority. And immediately, verse 25, he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. This man is instantly healed. His ligaments, his muscles, his nerves, all these things begin working again. And he stands up with strength, picks up his bed and goes home. What before was carrying him, he now carries to his own home. He, and look where his heart was directed. Look where his heart was directed. It says he was glorifying God. He, he, he felt strong and able again, and it caused his heart to swell with gratitude, to swell with praise, and to sing the praises of God. He was one loud, glorifying mouthpiece all the way to his house. He couldn't be shut up. Not only did he go home a healed man externally, but he went home a healed man internally. And he was overflowing with joy. The response we see here is true faith. A faith that believes in Jesus, responds appropriately, and then will praise God for what he sees. Praise God for the work done in him. Now, even though the text doesn't tell us what the Pharisees, how the Pharisees responded, what their response was, we can surmise that it was one of unbelief because we see them come back to challenge Jesus again and again and again. They weren't led in wonder and amazement to drop all opposition to Jesus and fall on their knees. They had no interest in discipleship. They had no interest in salvation. They believed they were already good spiritually. They rested in their own self-righteousness. They didn't need Jesus. The crowds of people did the exact opposite. It says, verse 26, an amazement seized them all and they glorify God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. They were flabbergasted. They were speechless. They could not explain what they saw. This was extraordinary. This was beyond any normal thing that they had ever seen. Not only a healing of a paralytic man, but the forgiving of sins. Jesus could heal on demand. He could offer forgiveness freely. And this caused them to worship God as well. Well, this forces us to ask the question that really this whole passage has been pressing us on. What do we do with this man? Upon seeing Jesus displayed in all of his authority to heal, to forgive, what is our response going to be? You see, we really have the same two responses that the, the people in that day had. And that is, are we going to respond with faith? Or are we going to respond with unbelief? Are we going to continue to harden our hearts and say, I don't, I don't need Jesus. I found my own way to be clean. I found my own way to be good. I found my own way to have joy and life everlasting. Or are we going to glorify God? Are we going to recognize our sin? Recognize our need for forgiveness? Align with the paralytic and his friends and, and go with desperation to the Lord and cry out and say, please forgive me. Please heal me. This is 
the only true faithful response based upon what we see of Jesus in this text. And for those of you who have never gone to Jesus for forgiveness, those of you who still carry your burden of guilt around and have not confessed your sin and repented and turned from your sin, Jesus has authority and power to heal you of your spiritual ailment this morning, to forgive you of your sin. If you would go to him, confess your sins to him, repent and ask him to forgive you, he's able to say to you what he said to this man. Man, your sins are forgiven you. Woman, your sins are forgiven you. This is the power and the joy and the life that is offered in the gospel to us today. If we would but turn and repent in Christ, we would receive life. And we would be able to go home like this paralytic, having a clean conscience, knowing that our eternal destiny is secure, knowing that we stand with the Messiah. We stand with the Son of God, and He holds us fast. Friends, our confidence in our eternal destiny does not rest upon what we have done. Our confidence in our eternal destiny rests in what Jesus has done. The fact that Jesus was crucified on our behalf, that He was buried, and that He rose again on the third day, and now lives forevermore. And that by placing our faith in Him, we are forever united to Him. And nothing can ever touch that. No disease, nothing in this life can ever separate us from the love of God, right? That is our confidence. That is our hope. That we are forgiven sinners today. If you do not have that hope, if you do not know where your eternal destiny is, I invite you to come and talk to me after the service. Talk to someone next to you. Talk to me with the person you came with. We'd love to talk to you so you might have assurance, so that you may know that you have eternal life today. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that it presents to us a Jesus who is mighty to heal, but more importantly is mighty to forgive. That even though we have sinned greatly, that our sins rise to the heavens and we sin on a daily basis, that you, that you have provided a way for us to have those sins released from us. Thank you that you have promised that if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, I pray for those who are here, who are listening to me, Lord, who are not your are not your children, that do not know you, that continue to stand in their self-righteousness, continue to stand in the works that they have done, thinking that they are okay. God, shake them loose. Take the blinders from their eyes. May the unbelief fall away and may they recognize their dire peril before you if they were to die tonight. Father, may you please capture them for your own. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.